Well, today is uh, another opportunity to look at the Word of God in a very practical way, a very practical text. And uh, we're going to work our way through this, but let me just say, I want you to think from the very beginning, Lord, how do you want me to change today? Or how do you want me to begin changing today? Uh, if you're a Christian, I doubt you'll be able to, to leave here unable to answer that question. And some of us may leave with a whole grocery list of things that we need to work on relative to change, um, and, uh, and specifically our communication. If I could just take a second, could somebody grab me a bottle of water? I, that would really help me. The, the Starbucks is not helping me with that. Okay. Okay. So here we go. I want you to take your Bible and open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to work our way through a portion of this, but all of it relative to uh, communication, Christian communication, and I'm not talking about radio or television or anything like that. We're talking about simply talking to one another. How do we do that? Uh, this is so important for us. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a wonderful gift to the church. It's addressed to people who hardly realize how rich they are in Christ. In chapter 1, Paul attempts to convey to us the unfathomable glory of the God who loves us. We are his glory. We see his glory in his word and in his people and in his world. We see it in the things that he has done for us. Namely, he called us. He chose us. He promised us a future inheritance. In fact, that glorious part of Ephesians in the beginning where it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he, he goes into predestination and all those things, three things are happening there. The Apostle Paul is telling us how God loved us in eternity past, how he loves us now, and how he will love us for eternity. We could just take the offering and be done. This is so wonderful for us, for us. And beyond that, he enlightens us with his wisdom as he has given us his Holy Spirit as a pledge, a payment, a down payment on our future inheritance when we come face to face with Jesus. And all of, the, all of this is given to us because of our new relationship with Christ. In God's eyes, we are now in Christ. God has placed us in union with Christ. And if you're not familiar with the doctrine of union with, with Christ, oh, beloved, you need to dig. You need to learn this. This is arguably the most precious doctrine in the Bible for Christians. God has placed us in union with Christ, and we can now share communion with him by his Holy Spirit. We can share uh, a relationship with God the Father, and we share a relationship with one another. 
In chapter 2, Paul explains how we got to be in Christ. It is by grace, you can say it with me, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. This is chapter 2, or at least the beginnings of chapter 2. In chapter 3, then, in chapter 3, then, he reveals that because we are in Christ, we are now part of the church. We are now part of the bride of Christ. We are now together the church. Believers from all nationalities, ethnicities, who are in Christ now have communion with one another. Don't you love when you look around Calvary Bible Church and you see the different nationalities, different ethnicities, um, and the glorious fellowship that we enjoy together? Compared to what the world is dealing with and trying to foist upon us, why would we want what they have when we have this? But that's a different sermon, I think. So it's no wonder then that in verse 14, in chapter 3, Paul tells us that he bows his knee before the Father, praying that we would be able to comprehend the great love of God which surpasses understanding. Did you, did you get that? Paul prays that you will begin to understand that which is ununderstandable. It's beyond our understanding. It's un. It's unfathomable, and yet we can know some level of the love of God which comes to us in Christ. And then in chapter 4, the focus of the letter makes a major shift. The first three chapters are all about the deep, rich theology of God's past grace, present grace, and future grace. The second three chapters, however, are mostly practicality, as was Paul's way of writing, on a number of occasions anyway. The first three chapters were about theology. This second half of the, of the book is about practicality. It's about how we live. In chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Now you've heard all of this theology. You're trying to digest this theology, and that's wonderful, but don't stop there. It should have an effect on your life. The gospel should change everything. And we don't know how to live in all of its particulars until the Bible teaches us how. And in this case, it's all about communication. You don't know how to communicate until God teaches you. And then even when you understand it, you're going to have to fight for it, for the glory of God and for your own joy. The main thrust of Ephesians 4 focuses on how, on a, on a person's, how a person's life is supposed to change after he becomes a Christian. Some things change automatically, they, and the person doesn't know why it changed. It just the Holy Spirit did something miraculous or wonderful. But other things need to be addressed by working on them with the energy that God supplies. Now, there are certain things that we need to put off, 
as Paul likes to say, and there are other things that we need to put on. There are sins that we need to put off, and there are holy attitudes and actions that need to be put on. And the reason for that is because God created you to show the world what God is like. Listen, we don't exist here to be our own lords and get what we want in this life. It's a major problem in the world. It always has been, but it seems worse now than ever before. But that's not how Christians live. We live not for ourselves, but to show the world what God is like, what Jesus is like, and what his gospel is like. Now, for our study this morning, we dare not miss the fact that the first practical issue that Paul addresses in this passage is communication. And this is where we're going to camp for the rest of the time. And, and I could just launch here and talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, but all I want to say here is this is a highly practical issue, and this is one of many Everything we need for life and godliness and all of the practical issues of life are covered by the Word of God sufficiently. Now, in the interest of full disclosure here, I need to let you know that what you're about to hear, and I hope digest, is not something that I came up with on my own. I've tweaked it along the way, but really, it goes all the way back to the founding of uh, what used to be called the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors, NANC. And, um, and I believe it was uh, either Bob Smith, Dr. Bob Smith, or uh, Wayne Mack who came up with this basic structure, and, uh, and I've just tweaked it uh, for our own context. And that being said, let's begin with Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. And you can just stay, remain seated. We won't have you stand for this because of time, but... The four rules of communication come from this passage, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, and here's how it reads. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth with each one, with one another, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. He must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's our text for this morning. And oh, how much is in here, both explicitly and implicitly. So, I'm going to teach you the four rules of communication. And I'm going to do something that most of you have never seen here before. Uh, I'm going to, as I teach you these things, I want you to say them back to me because I want you to memorize this. It's only four rules. It's really only four words. Well, a couple of them have more than one word. 
And I want you to memorize these because I want you to use them at home and I want you to teach your children. Because we have learned over the years when we were teaching our children these things that the Holy Spirit uses your children to take what they have learned and remind us of them. If everybody in the house reminds each other of the four rules of communication, your communication is going to be a lot better. So let's talk about this. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And this is where it begins. This is where it begins. Uh, the first rule in the four rules of communication is be honest. Say it with me now. Be honest. So rule number one, be honest. Now, if you're going to be, uh, be honest, there are several things that we need to think about in, in practical terms. Uh, first of all, we, the implication here is that you are going to speak. You're going to speak. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, it is, but it's also necessary, as you'll see. The first thing we notice is that God commands us to speak. The word speak here is an imperative. You know what that means? It's a command. It's a command. Sometimes when there is a, a problem in the home, we expect the other person to read their spouse's mind. Um, but God doesn't tell us to guess at what the other person is thinking or to conjecture what the other person is thinking, what their motive was. God doesn't tell us to do that. Rather, he commands us to speak. You see, clamming up is not an option. Clamming up is not, at least, a, not a biblical option. Uh, we always, in biblical counseling, we often say, look, you're either, you're either a clam, you clam up, or you're a volcano, you, you explode. And if you clam up too long, you'll become a volcano and explode. None of them are good. I gotta tell you, my propensity is to clam up. And I have to fight that, fight that, fight that, fight that, fight that. And maybe you're a clamor like me, or maybe you're a volcano. If you're going to solve a problem, we're going to have to speak to one another. Wayne Mack writes, perhaps there are moments when silence is golden, but if that is your usual way of Responding to opposition, conflict, honest differences of opinion, criticism, disagreement, you will never develop a relationship, a strong, grounded relationship. So we must speak. We need to be careful how we speak. There needs to be lots of foresight before we speak. And then not only speak, but what kind of speech? Well, speak the truth. Speak the truth. This goes back to being honest. Speaking the truth is a verb. It involves continuous action. Keep speaking the truth. As long as you're talking to one another, may your words be true. Notice here that Paul's priority is what we are to put off. We are to put off the kind of untruthful talk that will get you in trouble either immediately or later on. We are to put off lying and falsehood. And that may seem obvious, but the reality is before any of us 
jumps to the conclusion that I'm not a liar. I'm not a liar. Maybe we can rethink that a little bit if we dig into it a little bit. Maybe we lie more often than we think we do. So we are to put off lying or falsehood. And so these are the things that we need to keep in mind as we do. So there are a number of ways that you and I can be deceitful in our conversations. There is, number one, outright deceit. You just do a bald-faced lie. But that's not the only way to be dishonest. There's another kind of dishonesty, and it might be called incongruency. Uh, this is body language. In, in counseling, a lot of times we call it the halo data. They're intangible things. And, and sometimes your body is saying the exact opposite of what your, what your mouth is saying. And then there's using 100% words. Now, before I tell you what 100% words are, just put a circle around this one. This is one that you're going to teach your kids, and they're going to teach you over and over and over again. They think this is so funny, and it's not. But 100% words. Dr. Mack calls this lethal exaggeration. Here are some examples of a lethal exaggeration or 100% words. Ready? You always. You never. For example, uh, as a subset of that, let me just make it a little more practical. You're always late. That's a 100% word, right? Always. There's never been a time when you were not late. Uh, ponder that. We'll come back to it in a minute. You're always too tired. You're never ready on time. You yell all the time. I always have to clean up after you. You have an excuse for everything. You will never learn. You never listen to me. You could say that to your children, and that would be sin. You're always dissatisfied with everything I do. The only time you're nice to me is when you want something from me. You're the worst housekeeper I've ever known. Don't say that. <laughs> I don't think I ever have, but don't, don't. Here's the problem with that. These are all sweeping generalizations. They're 100% word, but nobody can do 100% of anything. You may, you, women, wife, you may say to your husband, you never pick up your laundry. Well, that's not true. He's thinking, and let me just tell you what he's thinking. That's not true. In 1973, <laughs> I distinctly remember. See, it's, it's not never, it's something else. These are sweeping generalizations, and they're hurtful, and they, they clog up your communication, and it leaves lasting scars. In addition to being harsh and unloving, all of these statements are dishonest. They are false. They are, at some level, a lie. Lou Priolo suggests, and this is really helpful, Lou, Lou Priolo says that if there really is some sinful snare into which your husband or wife regularly falls. Try using such phrases as, honey, 
I think you tend to, or I think I have observed a pattern, and this is what it looks like, or you seem to be, you seem to habitually struggle with. You see the difference between throwing down a 100% word and giving room, giving latitude in there that, that your assessment might be wrong? That's really helpful. Another way to be dishonest is failing to reveal the truth when asked. This is great with teenagers. Sub, what you doing? Nothing. <laughs> Where are you going? Nowhere. When are you going to be back? Sometime. Um, failure to reveal truth when asked. How about this? Honey, what's, what's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Another way to be dishonest, dishonest is blame shifting. Lou Priolo says, this is the oldest one in the book. Literally. Genesis 3.12. That's early in church history, right? Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. It's all her fault. It's all her fault. That's blame shifting. It's blame sh If you're not familiar with that term, you ought to get familiar with that term. Because you ought, to, you ought to be able to identify it when you hear it coming out of your mouth. So, Paul teaches us that because we are in Christ, we need to put off false speech, put on truthful speech. And think about it, honestly, more than simply not lying, it means being open and honest about the truth, whatever that truth is. And you're open and honest about it with yourself. And, and I don't know about you, but when you're wrestling with something like that, that's the hardest thing. Being, true, being, being um, honest with yourself about what you're thinking, what you're saying. So Paul teaches that because we are in Christ, we need to put off false speech and put on truthful speech. Now think about it, honestly. Honesty is more than simply not lying. It means being open and honest with the truth as God has revealed it. And by the way, honesty is not just behavior. It's an attitude of the heart. You sin in your heart far, far more than we do with our mouths and with our hands and with our eyes. It's an attitude of the heart. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. Fundamentally, sin and righteousness are always matters of the heart, which is why we have to work at that level. It's why you need to be in the Word every day. It's why you need to pray every day, these basic things. It's why you need to be in fellowship with the brethren, the, the church body, or that segment of the church body that you're most intimate with. This is all so important. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self and its evil practices. That's not who you are anymore. You are a Christian. You are a little Christ. You are a representative of Jesus. He never lied. He never lied. And if you're going to live like that, if you're going to show the world what God is like, 
Never lie. Never lie to yourself and never lie to others. So, as believers, we must speak, and when we do, we must speak the truth. But another consideration is that we must speak the truth lovingly. Lovingly. Now, some of you need to just put on your, your seatbelt right here and your crash helmet because this is going to hurt. Failing to, to, um, failing to reveal the truth when asked, we covered that. Blame shifting, oh, here we are. Speak, speak the truth lovingly. Loving communication is not brutal. That may seem obvious, but I know over the years as as we have counseled, especially people who are outside the church, people that we, have, we really didn't know very well, but when we get to know them, we find out that when they talk to one another, they're, it's not just unkind, it's brutal. Brutal. And it's usually hidden under a phrase like this. Well, I'm just being honest. And I always say, we don't need that kind of honesty. You don't need to be brutal. You don't need to dump everything that you're... Uh, that your sinful heart is thinking and saying. That's not helpful. We need to speak the truth, and sometimes that means we need to deal with sin, but if there really is sin, you can address it lovingly, carefully. Sometimes we speak with a spiteful, harsh, angry, or judgmental spirit without giving any forethought. It's just, boom, it's there. It just explodes out of your mouth. And damage is done. And, and instead of making matters better, it gets worse. Because now you've caused more harm, rather than promoting some healing in the relationship. Christians are to speak, to, uh, speak with the other person's best interest in mind. You remember Philippians 2? Three through four, do not merely look at your own interests, but also the interests of others. Do you remember what the context of that was? He's about to talk about Jesus humbling himself, becoming a man, even uh, to the point of death, he humbled himself. And again, this is another example from the Bible and that principle that we exist to show the world what God is like. Speaking the truth means we, we tell all of these facts, but we do it, we do it in a loving manner. Loving communication, for example, does not judge motives. Loving communication does not judge motives. Let me give you an example similar to the one I, I gave you a few minutes ago. You only say that because you want me to feel guilty. Why would, why would you think that? That was the last thing on my mind. Uh, the reason you're being nice to me is so I'll buy that dress for you. What? That, that's judging of motives. That is way out of bounds. You don't know. You don't know what's in the heart of a man. And we see this again and again in Scripture. The problem with each of these statements is that they assign an evil motive. Remember, love believes all things. Where'd that come from? Remember? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, true love. 
In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we read this. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of, the, of, the, of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from God. What he's, what's he saying? Someday, all the motives of the heart will be exposed by God, and you are not him. And it is not time. If that person isn't explaining their motives, you don't know their motives. And humility will keep you from assuming that you know their motives. Next, loving communication uses an economy of words. An economy of words. Proverbs 10, 19. See if you can finish this uh, proverb. When words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. You know, when you're in a tense situation with your spouse or one of your kids or somebody else, and you know the tension is rising, the first thing you should say is, Lord, Help me not sin with my mouth. Help me to keep my mouth shut while my, my, while my mind is processing what's happening here, what's going on in my own heart. What just happened? What questions do I need to ask? And so a loving, uh, loving communication uses an economy of words. Frank Shannon, how many of you know Frank Shannon? Raise your hand if you know Frank Shannon. About half of you. Uh, He's, Frank, are you here today? He might be here uh, during worship service. I told him I was going to use this. Uh, when he was an elder, um, uh, I remember when I was a young elder here, and uh, Frank, who I served with for all those years, um, he had an axiom that we used all the time. Okay, think economy of words. Frank's way of saying that is, don't say boo-hoo when boo will do. Don't say boo-hoo when boo will do. It's an economy of words. So the first rule of communication is be honest. Be honest. And to be honest, we must speak. And we must speak the truth. And we must speak the truth in a loving manner. Second, we are to keep current. So what's the first and second rule? First rule, be honest. Be honest. Second rule, keep current. That's right, you kind of know where this is going, I bet. It's important that we solve today's problems today. Even righteous anger can become sinful anger in a heartbeat. So don't say when you're angry, don't appeal to this scripture. I'm righteously angry. I'm not sure, I've, I've heard that many times in the counseling room. There wasn't a single time when I thought he really was righteously angry. So the first rule is be honest. The second rule is keep current. This is Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. So it's important here that we, we deal with today's problems today, as I said. Even righteous anger can, can go south in a hurry. Why is this important? Well, Matthew 6, 34 says, each day has enough trouble of its own. Who said that? Jesus said that. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't, don't carry today's problems into tomorrow. 
You'll become backlogged. I mean, literally. If you're not dealing with them as it comes in a reasonable amount of time, you're going to remember that offense that is not resolved. And there'll be another offense, and another offense, and another offense. And Wayne Mack used to call it uh, gunny sacking. But I, I had to stop using that because the young people don't know what gunny sacks are. Uh, like a knapsack for like a soldier, just a big bag. And every time someone offends you, you throw that in your bag. You just throw it in your bag. You just throw it in your bag. And your bag gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you can't stand it anymore and it bursts open and the clam becomes a volcano. And it all comes out. And then, and then how, do you, how do you deal with it? How do, you deal, how do you deal with 20 problems? One is hard enough. Unresolved anger leads to bitterness, and bitterness leads to all kinds of calamities in relationships, even Christian relationships. Clamming up gives the devil a foothold. Chapter 4, verse 27, don't give the devil a foothold, which you will do if you don't address the problem in a, in a godly manner, in a loving way. Unresolved anger will lead to resentment, which leads to a deep sense of bitterness. In 1 John 1, 7, it says this, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? How many of you say God? Good. I see that hand. You can come forward. <laughs> um, it's not what it says. I, re I remember wrestling with this text, and when I got there, I thought he was going to say God. It's not what he says. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. That means your wife. That means your husband. That means you with your kids. So the question is, what does it mean to walk in the light? To walk in the light means to have an open and honest attitude toward your own sin. If you have an open and honest attitude about your own contribution to the problem, even if your contribution to this problem is only 5%, own the 5%. That's all you can do. So walk in the light as he is in the light. And if you do, your wife will probably be shocked that you're so open about what you did. Or your, your husband is going to be shocked, and there'll be healing. Walk in the light. As you, walk in, what was I saying? Walk in the light as he is in the light. You will have fellowship with one another. I think... This is the most important marriage verse in the Bible because this is where it all starts. This is where it all goes wrong. You've got to be open and honest about your own sin. So you do have to address one another's sins if you're going to live in harmony as sinners, saints, right, children of God. Here are seven questions to ask before you confront someone on any issue. You ready? 
You're going to need to keep this. Keep it someplace where you can pull this out and remind yourself. Number one, do I have all the facts? Do I have the, all the facts? In other words, is this true? Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Secondly, should love cover this? This is the second question before you confront someone. Should love cover this? Well, let's think about that. When should love cover a sin? Well, it certainly should cover sin after it's been repented of. But um, there may be times when you just cover it. Unilaterally, you just cover it. You know, you're out to dinner with some friends, and you're a little bit, you know, you and your wife have had a hard week, and you're trying to be out and be jovial and have fun, and your wife makes a comment about you, and it kind of rattles you. What do you do? Do you try to fix that immediately? Or do you say, we're all just having fun here. Love covers a multitude of sins. The problem is not her. The problem is me. Lord, forgive me for taking an offense. Love covers, this is uh, 1 Peter 4, 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, thirdly, is my timing right? Is my timing right? It's like if you have a problem with, with the pastor, don't go tell him as he's uh, getting ready to get up on the platform to preach. That's bad timing. <laughs> I, I know that by experience. <laughs> Is my timing right? Proverbs 15, 23. A man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. 20, uh, verse 28 of that same passage. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Now that should sting. Because typically when there's an offense, we just let it fly. We just say all the stuff that you really wanted to say. And probably all of it is sinful. Next, is my own attitude right? Before you confront someone, ask yourself, is my attitude right here? Am I still seething? Get control of that before you approach that person. Is my attitude right? Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in what? In love, we'll come back to that in a second, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That is, growing up to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You're becoming more and more like Christ so that you can show the world what Christ is like. Next, are my words carefully chosen to communicate love? Listen, sometimes before you enter that conversation, you need to get a three-by-five card or something and kind of map out what you, what you think you should say and the things that you definitely shouldn't say. If you're worried that, that some phrase that has come out of your mouth a hundred times is going to come out again, and talk to the Lord about that. Be open and honest about that sin before it happens. Are my words carefully chosen to communicate 
love. Ephesians 4.15 again, speaking the truth in love. Next, have I prayed for God's help? Uh, no, I haven't, I haven't. I'm just going on the fly. Well, stop that. <laughs> At least take enough time to, to pray, to ask the Lord for help. It's going to take a while to, to get used to this. It's going to take a while for you to develop the habit of forethought before you engage in a thorny conversation. It's going to take some forethought to preserve what's, uh, what you really want to see taking place in this conversation. And the best thing to do is pray. Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to be honest and open about my own sin. Why, why would I try to, to protect that? Lord, help. Lord, help. How, I mean, if, if you're a praying person, you probably would admit that many, many, many times your, your prayer really wasn't that theological. You just, you just said, Lord, I need help right now. I need help now. I need wisdom right now. Give me wisdom right now. Please help me not to sin with my mouth. Help me not hurt my wife. Help me not do damage to this relationship. If I damage this relationship, I damage my ability to communicate the glory of Christ in our relationship. Everything else is secondary. And so we, we read scriptures like this. Have I prayed for help? How about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and, what's the next phrase? Ah, you are a well-educated congregation. <laughs> lean not. Do not lean on your own understanding and counseling. So many times, I, 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 my counsel was, listen, brother, right now, here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you lean on your own understanding. What you're saying is not biblical. It is not honoring to Christ because it's not consistent with his word. Do not lean on your own understanding. So pray. Ask God to give you wisdom and get someone to help you bring the word of God to bear on that problem, on that conversation that needs to happen. Um, Colossians 2.4, devote yourselves to prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. Psalm 19.14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, help me not say anything that would not be worthy of your name. Here's another one. Is it profitable? Is what I'm about to say to this person, do I believe it's profitable? Will it help or will it hurt? Is it constructive or is it probably destructive? I think if I say this, it's going to cause more harm than good. Rather than I have to say, I have to say something and I think I know what God wants me to say and that's going to be really hard and it's going to be really painful but I'm doing it with all the appropriate biblical foresight and maybe even got counsel 
from a brother or sister in the body to help you make sure that what you're about to say will be honoring to the Lord. Is it profitable? Proverbs 20, 15. There is gold in abundance of cost and costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. The lips of knowledge. It means, it means wise words. Lips of knowledge, wise words. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it will give grace to those who hear. The word unwholesome here is, is an important word. I'm going to bring you to it here in a minute. Let me point to First uh, Corinthians 10, 23. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. It said, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, why do I say that? Why that text? It's because your goal should be to edify. Now, edify is kind of an evangelical word that, uh, that we throw around. I'm not sure that, that we really are thinking properly on it when we use it. You know what an edifice is? Hmm. An edifice is a structure, right? It's like a building. You're building something. If you're edifying your building, you're building, you're building, you're building. If you're on the demolition team, you're destroying, you're destroying, you're destroying, you're destroying. And a lot of times, I think, when you have difficult conversations, you come in as a, um, with, with C4... <laughs> And, and really, I mean, you don't want to blow it up completely, but you're going to do a lot of damage. Demolition day. A key axiom to remember before you confront is this, and if you've been around Calvary for a long time, you know this. Um, and you should, if it's not in your notes, you should write it down. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. When you need to have a, a difficult conversation, it's going to take forethought to make sure none of, none of what you say is, is unnecessarily hurtful or dishonest, unloving. You want to make sure all of those things are intact. Um, but when you actually sit across, face to face, eye to eye, if you come with accusations, you've already lost. But if you come and ask a question like this. Honey, can you help me understand um, what was happening there between you and our son? Rather than saying, you should never say that to my son ever again. It's ominous. It's not helpful. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Now, I'm going to have you say that. Ready? Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. So the first rule is what? Be honest. The second rule is keep current. Keep current. Uh, and, I, and I skipped over that one uh, statement of Paul. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
Now, that doesn't mean if it is, uh, what time does the sun go down? Around 8 o'clock? I mean, if it's like 7.59 when it happens, I mean, uh, literally, you're not going to have time. Uh, but if you understand that what the Apostle Paul is saying is deal with this as soon as possible. As soon as possible. Don't go to bed angry, if at all possible. And it should be possible if you're a believer and you're in conflict and the sun has gone down. Stay up late. Talk. Do what needs to be done. Or maybe bump it over to the next day. But let that be a mutual decision. Honey, we need to talk about these things, but I am so tired. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that if we get into this conversation right now, it's going to go badly. Can we, how about, how about 8 o'clock tomorrow night? Can we meet and talk about that? I hate to put it off that long, but can we meet then? Now we got a plan. And now everybody has time to think about these things and bring them to bear on their own heart. So the first two, be honest, keep current. These others will be shorter. Number three, attack the problem, not the person. I remember when I first learned this, I always got it backwards. Attack the person, not the problem. I don't know if there's something latent hostility in me or whatever, but um, attack the problem, not the person, verses 29 and 30. Put off words that tear down and attack the person. Proverbs 12, 18. Words. This is really interesting. The Proverbs has so much to say about our speech. Here's, here's a, if you want to go home and, I mean, since you have a day off today and you want to study something, uh, study speech in the Proverbs. Now, here are the words you're going to be looking for. Mouth. Lips, speech, words. Um, there are probably some other euphemisms there. Uh, when, when you see those, all of them are talking about your speech. They're all giving us instruction about speech. Proverbs 12, 18. Words, words are like poison. Words are like a sword. Not, not a def in a defensive way but in an attacking way. Proverbs 18, 21. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. So many times when a divorce happens, it really comes down to the words. What you said as a reflection of your heart, what you said to each other that should never have been said, well, I'm just being honest. No, you're not. You're just being foolish and sinful. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And so Ephesians 4, 30 says, um, we can grieve the Holy Spirit with our words. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? You can grieve God. The very heart of God is grieved. When you speak, in the way that he has forbidden you to speak. I tell you, we don't know how to talk until God teaches us, and he's teaching us. I'm not saying these things are easy. They're not. They're hard. Every, every time I do it, every time I'm, 
I'm the one pursuing it, or if I'm, if I'm the one receiving it, it's always hard. It's always hard. Man up. Do the hard thing. Proverbs 18.21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Ephesians 4.30, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and then our words, Paul describes them as unwholesome. Unwholesome, one of the translations says corrupt. It literally means rotten. Your words, if you, if you cuss and swear at each other, that's, have you ever reached into the refrigerator and pulled out an avocado that's been in there for a long time and you're looking for this wonderful, I mean, I'm on this diet where I, I eat avocado like every day. And if I'm not looking, I can scoop one and pop that in my mouth. It's been fermenting for some time. And this is what it literally is, is what he's saying here. Unwholesome means corrupt. It, it, it means to stink. It stinks. It's good for nothing. How far removed are these from the sweet fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5.22? And by the way, fruit of the Spirit comes to us by the Holy Spirit in nine delicious flavors <laughs> that are not for you. They're produced in you for the people around you, the people you live with. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Did I get them all? I missed one. What? Gentleness. Gentleness. <laughs> I do miss that a lot. But <laughs> Put on words that build up and attack the problem and do it together. When you attack the person, you bypass the problem. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, consider the other person's interests as more important than your own. Again, that's uh, Philippians 2. This is the illusion there is of, of Jesus who humbled himself and became a man even obedient to death. Don't live for your own benefit Live for the benefit of those around you to show them what the gospel is like and what, the, what God is like. Attacking the problem means finding a solution. It means you have to sit down and talk, okay, what can we do? What can we, what can we agree upon mutually that will help us resolve this today and come up with a plan? And, and maybe ask yourself some questions like, like this one. Since God is sovereign, since his providence rules over all, why did God allow this to happen? What is he doing? In this? this is not a two-person conflict. There are three people involved. You, your spouse, or maybe it's you and your son. But the third person is God himself. God will enable you, by his grace, to find a solution. Why did God allow this to happen? Romans 8, 28, you know that verse. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
This is somehow a good thing for me. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And if that's true, then what's happening right now is for my good. This difficult, awkward conversation that I don't want to have, God has ordained it. And therefore it is for my good. So why did he allow this to happen? That's a good question. How about this? Here's another question. What character issue is God trying to deal with in me, not the other person? By the way, if you're married, how many of you are married? Raise your hand. Now, uh, I won't ask you to raise your hands on this one, but how many of you have, have come to the conclusion that you'll never be able to change your spouse? Oh, there, I see that hand. <laughs> no hands, no hands. Um, you don't have the capacity to change them. Listen, you have the responsibility to work on yourself, but you don't even have the power to change yourself. What makes you think you're going to change him or her? So what plans need to be formulated, etc.? And then the last... Uh, uh, I'm out of time. Time. Um, the last one is this. Let's go through them. Number one, rule number one, be honest. Number two, keep current. Number three, attack the problem, not the person. And the last one is act, don't react, right? Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Conflicts and arguments usually rise, arise when people uh, act emotionally or they react to whatever is going on emotionally, the essence of this rule is this. Control your emotions. You may be at DEFCOM 4 on the inside. You need to get the Holy Spirit fire patrol to put water on that. Get control of your emotions. And by the way, for you who have young children, moms especially, you need to teach them to control their emotions early. Early. So verse 31 tells us what to put off in all bitterness and clamor and slander and malice kind, uh, and replace it with kindness, generosity, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, all of these things. Wayne Mack used to say, we need to communicate like two lovers, not two lawyers. And so I'm finished, but let me, um, let me wrap up with this last statement. Would you today evaluate your closest relationship? How is God calling you to change? What specifically do you need to do? And who will you ask for help? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is profoundly sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Help us to take it to heart and put it into practice, even today, for your glory and for our own joy, we pray in Jesus' name.